Lawrence, thank you. Thanks ever so much for joining us on our Bear Yourself podcast. Uh, introduce myself. My name is Ephraim. I'm the co-founder of the Strongman Charity, and I work alongside Paul Sampson, somehow your former colleague who uh, works in the mental health side of things. And I know you guys have known each other for nearly 30 years. Mm-hmm. But uh, for those that don't know a huge amount about you, tell us a little bit in a nutshell about you before we go into um, more detail. Well, thank you for having me on the pod for a start. Uh, it's nice to be invited um, to talk about uh, and hear about your charity, really, which is uh, incredible, strong man. Uh, having run a charity of my own that works with young, um, young boys and girls uh, in, in education, I know how hard it is to run a charity, so well done. A little bit about me. Um, well, I'm half a century old, so uh, 50 years old, uh, and I grew up in London, although from Italian uh, father, Irish mother, which makes me a slightly dangerous Englishman, I think. Um, <laughs> I um, had a fairly simple background. I mean, rugby is always perceived to be white middle-class elite sport. Um, I think that label was probably fairly correct many years ago, but I, I grew up on, in the east end of London. Parents had a sweet shop uh, in on the commercial road, so very much a working class background. Um, and then I think my dad must have won the lottery or something happened because we moved from, from Bethnal Green to Barnes, um, which was definitely an upgrade at the time. Um, and yeah, I, I, you know, I grew up in a very, um, even though we didn't have a lot of money, I had a, a lot of love and care and support. And I think that is quite important in life, really. Um, I would say, you, you need to do two things as a parent, really. You need to give unconditional love, which is an easy thing to say. It's quite a hard thing to do. Um, and just, you know, give young kids a support system, a belief system that they can go out and achieve anything and everything. And that's certainly what I got from my mother. And every player who played on my team or against my team got the same team talk as well. So, um, yeah, I had a, I had a really uh, loving, caring upbringing, quite diverse um, real full of characters um, and obviously, you know, slightly life-changing experiences. Lost my sister very young um, at the age I was 16. She was 19. I think that probably sort of maybe shapes you in a slightly different direction. But up until that point, you know, life was uh, pretty cool. I know from my own experiences when we lost our son James, he was 22. And it happened so very, very quickly, it changes you forever. There's no going back on it. And I guess with your parents being such a big influence on you, that must have changed the dynamic in the family environment. I know as a dad mm. who lost the child, it completely changed the dynamic, not just between myself and my wife, but with our daughter who was 21 at the time. It changed her and it changed, but like I said, put a little bit of pressure on her, but she's now so precious to us. Yeah. But if she was still finding her way, it was, I imagine you were even more so when you were 16. That's not the way life works normally. You know, you don't think about it like that. You know, you don't expect to bury one of your siblings before your parents, that's for sure. Um, and it blew our world apart, really, um, you know, in quite dramatically in different directions. Um, my sister was a very high achiever. She did, you know, was um, dancing from the age of five, um, you know, scholarships at Royal Ballet School, got honours in every single exam. She was incredible, really. One of those people at school that makes you a bit sick, really, because she's achieved so, so, so much. And, she used to say to my mum, don't, you know, don't worry, Lawrence will come good in the end, because I was definitely um, a bit of a troublemaker before, uh, even before she passed away. But um, yeah, listen, I was sat around the table with her one night in August uh, at 1989. She invited me to go to a um, you know, riverboat party. Uh, I 
declined. Paul knows that I'm you know, not shy of a party or two, but for some reason I didn't fancy at the age of 16. And then my mum woke me up the next day and said that she hasn't come back. So, I mean, I kind of knew straight away that she, you know, she was the most sensible person in the world. So if she wasn't back by the following morning, that, that something was quite serious had happened, you could hear the helicopters and everything. So, yeah, it was, it was very, very tough because um, from an Irish-Italian background, we were all about family. And even though we were only a small family of four, um, you know, it was very, very tight knit. So to lose my sister overnight was devastating. And, and I felt obviously confused, didn't really understand life. You know, 16, you've got no idea. From that moment onwards, you're sort of thinking, well, what's life all about when that sort of thing happens? Um, my parents, I could see, were, were devastated naturally because grief gets people in different ways, you know, and they obviously you know, went in different directions. Um, so it's a tricky time in my life. And not what a lot of people don't know is they look at me now and they think, oh, well, you must have always wanted to play rugby. I can tell you now, I mean, rugby was just a bit of fun for me, really. It was not something I planned on doing. Um, and then I had a bad couple of years after my sister passed um, where I was making some really bad choices, getting, I got kicked out of school, quite understandably, shouldn't have really gone to school. Um, and, Eventually, I got to about 1990, so it was about a year and a half later or a year later, and I thought, right, I need to sort my shit out. And, you know, I could see my parents really struggling to stay together. And I joined a rugby club, you know, and that was the reason for my joining a rugby club, not because I had any inclination to do that. I just thought I need something that's going to change the direction of my life. So what rugby provided me was a family, a community. I just needed someone to put their arms around me, um, not ask about what happened in the past, um, and I joined Wasps, you know, that I walked in the door and no one really cared about what had happened. That may, a few people knew, but no one really sort of pried into my, what happened before. Um, and I was just accepted, you know, the way I was. And, and rugby's got a way of doing that. It's um, well, certainly the club that I joined did. Um, and they made me feel very welcome. Um, and what it allowed me to do was to start to rebuild my life, to give me a bit of purpose and direction. And... Slowly but surely, my mum and dad, who hadn't really spent a lot of time out of the home, started to come and watch us play rugby together. Um, and yeah, it was like a, a sort of family therapy, really. Um, and really helped us to, uh, you know, to sort of move forward in a, in a positive way. So for those who question my, that was my why. I wanted to um, honour the, you know, use rugby as a way of honouring the death of my sister. Um, and that becomes quite powerful because technically I wasn't actually that good at rugby, really. Um, I, I genuinely wasn't. I mean, I wasn't as good as some of the players that, that you see today and certainly not as good as some of the players that went before me. But I think for me, it was uh, much more about a spiritual journey, uh, much more about an emotional journey. Um, I mean, it, I suppose I could have chosen golf or tennis or something, for, you know, a little bit less damaging on the body because... But I, I just like the, the whole nature of, of, of the sport. Um, we're all different. We all come from a different part, a different journey in life. And what rugby does is it celebrates that difference and it puts everyone together in, in quite a sort of melting pot of, um, you know, the changing room. And for me, it was, yeah, it was about using all of that emotion that I had, that anger, that grief, um, and trying to channel it in a kind of positive way. Um, and uh, that's probably what you know what mo certainly what motivated me and I think people could see that in me because even though um, I'm quite transparent really and certainly in the dressing room um, because 
men are quite, it's quite difficult to open up emotionally, um, you know, and, and make no mistake, I'm, you know, no better at it than any of us. But what that tragedy allowed me to do was to open up a little bit more. And um, once you open up your own vulnerabilities, actually other men in the dressing room see that and then, you know, they start to open up as well. And I think if you can connect the head and the heart, you know, it's a very powerful way of, uh, of performing. Bit cheek, bit naughty to do that sometimes. I've often thought about it and thought, mm, it's a bit naughty that I'm actually doing this because, you know, you're actually making grown men cry here, including myself. Um, but if it's a way of, if it's a way of um, you know, you getting over what you're getting over, and if it's a way of winning and, and getting the results you need, uh, I guess I didn't really mind that. So what I'm trying to say is that it doesn't really matter who's in the change room next door. They could be a better team than you. If you can connect a group of people together powerfully around a common theme, um, then, you know, there's, there's no stopping you really. Um, and rugby is a bit of a safety in numbers. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a brutal sport. Don't get me wrong. There's very few sports that are more brutal. Um, but you have got people around you. And I think that's what we have to remember in life is that you have people around you. We're not on this planet on our own, even though sometimes we do feel that way. Um, you know, the greatest gift in life is giving, right? It's, um, it's really important and I'm, I'm a firm believer in that. And it's not just about financial giving, it's about giving your time, your energy, your, your, your thoughts, your, not all the time, your experience. And, um, and I guess the reason why I was so attracted to that rugby is that the start of that journey was such a powerful start for me. And then once I joined the club that I joined, it wasn't really about, I wasn't driven by money, that's for sure. I wasn't about to leave. Um, it, that felt like a family to me. And that's why I stayed there for 20 years, actually. I had the pleasure and the honour of being captain by for about six years, I think it was. And um, it often fascinates me, even thinking back now, um, and certainly did at the time, just the sheer emotion. And, you know, we've certainly laughed about it um, at certain times. But the sheer emotion that was going into the team talks, yeah. where for, for many, many a time I was just thinking, God, he bloody loves wasps, yeah. which is absolutely true. But there was more to it. Um, and I was just interested to know, sort of, which we kind of know because you've just spoken about yeah. it. There's no other captain in the Premiership um, that I'm aware that would have driven some emotion that was so infectious yeah. and respected. Because it was, it did make you want to go out and play. It didn't, you know, there's a few things. It was infectious and it, and it got you the win. And even at times when you might not have been the better team on paper on a given day, but there was something a lot more. And, and, it, and it, as I say, it got you the win and it certainly gave me a very different experience. I think we've got to remember is that maybe it's, I mean, my personal experience drove, drove the, the thinking behind that. Um, whether it was right or wrong, I had no idea. I mean, you know, it's just, you know, what you, the game of rugby is very technical, it's very tactical, it's quite complicated. I mean, make no mistake, I played for a long time and I find it complicated. Um, what you articulate in, in a dressing room like we are in today, um, I'm not going to teach people how to be better rugby players in the five minutes I've got to speak to them, am I really? Um, you know, because many of them, I'm looking around the room and they're better rugby players than me anyway. So, but what you are able to do is you're able to um, find the right emotional connections and if you can piece those things together then I think you have something very very powerful and um, you know rugby what I'm trying to say is a metaphor for life 
you know, we, we all have good days, bad days. We're all strong at times. We all have vulnerabilities. And I think, you know, when you all go out in the field, you've got to feel connected and you've got to feel together. I mean, I spent through England's experiences with Clive Woodward and various other things that we did at Wasps, spent a lot of time with um, some of our armed forces, um, you know, whether it was uh, the Marines, the SBS, the, you know, the SAS, you know, whatever it might have been. And, you know, I know it's more difficult for, to, to speak to about in front of you, but when, what, we, what I learned from, from that experience was, and speaking to them very passionately, is that if someone doesn't do their job, you know, then that can be the difference between getting on a helicopter or not getting back on a helicopter. And that's quite a difficult thing to have to go and explain to people when you get home again. Um, now, rugby's not that dramatic. You know, people don't lose their lives, thankfully. But the concept of being able to go out there and look after each other and to be able to make sure that, that, um, that you come in the same people who, you know, who go out come come back in together is, is really important. And, you know, the ethos and values that sit behind that. So that was really powerful for me. And I think we tried to take that forward in a, in a really strong way. Um, and just having honest conversations, you know, it's, it's very difficult. One of the biggest transitions I've found since I retired, and it's a long time ago now, 2008 was my last game, is that rugby and sport generally at the very highest level is about just honesty. Um, you know, and just having those honest conversations, and we're all trying our best. Um, we all know that. But on a Monday morning, if you if you if you if you haven't won, there's there's got to be some accountability and and some uh, some responsibility to accept blame uh, without having to uh, um, you know get angry with each other. And I think that drives a certain sort of behaviour and a certain level of of, uh, of standards, which I think. It, for most sports people, they become quite hard to deal with when, when you leave the work, when you leave and go into the workplace and people just roll in half an hour late or they're just like this that, and the other. You go, well, if you're half an hour late for the helicopter, mate, you ain't getting on it. You know, if you're half an hour late for, you know, in a game of rugby, you're 30 nil down, you know. So it, it's, been, it's been a fascinating journey, really. But then, of course, if you're as brutal as we were and, and you start speaking to people in, that, in a certain way, you know, they burst out crying. So. It's, it's, it's a challenge, definitely. But I think, you know, it's also a, um, creating the right culture, if that's what you call it, creating the right behaviours within a certain group is, because um, individual human beings are beautiful people. When you start to put them together, you know, things can either go spectacularly well or they can actually go completely wrong as well. Um, it's much harder to manage groups than it is to manage each individual. Did you realise why the emotion was so high? I mean, did you have the connection of what Lawrence is saying about his sister, and mm -hmm. did you know that? You know, I've been in probably too many changing rooms, but I've liked. Um, but it's, you know, what it actually did, it, as I said, it was so infectious that, um, that it was real, and it was honest. And then you've got other players at very good clubs that wanted to be part of Wasps, or wanted to know what the secret was. And it, as I said, it was unrivaled, it was unmatched. You can't, you know, you can't replicate that no. unless it's genuine, unless it's authentic. But also I think you spend so much time in each other's company. I mean, it's not, I mean, you know, sport at the highest level, you know, you're with each other and you go through all, the, all these little emotional roller coasters together. You, you know, you, you see each other at their best, you see each other at their worst, you see them, you know, naked, you see them, you know, that you, you, you know the individual 
And you know, in, in, you know, emotionally, it's called you know the EQ of, of individuals. If someone walks in and something's happened, you know it immediately because you, you're going to see it out in the field. You know, you can't hide who you are when once you get out there. You know, and so therefore, it, it becomes much less about the rugby. We've got people really good at teaching rugby. That's it's about how you um, how you unite each other collectively. And look, I was. I was there 20 years, so I saw pretty much everything um, in that time. Uh, and I saw players, we're, we're all riddled with self-doubt at various moments in our, in our careers and in our lives. Um, <clears throat> how, you, how you help people through that journey collectively to make sure that they are able to peak and, get and, and, and operate at the level that they, am, that they are is really important. You know? <clears throat> and that was certainly, you know, I always said to people, the, the most important thing about winning is believing you can win. Um, and actually you can do most of your best work before a ball's even been kicked, just by getting people in the right mental frame of mind. We are obsessed in this country and all over the world with measuring you know, strength and speed and fitness and all these things that are really important. I mean, those are given, right? If you're talented, you're talented. If you're not fit, you've got to get fit. You've got to be the best in the world. The two things you can't measure is what's happening in here and what's happening up here. And the minute you could measure those things, You'd be, um, you'd be a superstar because those things have got such an important factor in, in, in performance and particularly in performance of a team. So, yeah, it was, uh, there's lots of different ways to do it. Um, and I, I just felt that, you know, I mean, look at my, the England team that I played in. You know, we all went through a journey of six years together. I, I saw, you know, Will Green would have some real problems with his, um, <clears throat> you know, with his birth of his first child, you know, Ben Cohen's father was murdered, you know, there, there was some, you know, Martin Johnson lost his mother, you know, I lost my sister historically, so there was, we're, we're, all, we're all on the same journey, we all have bumps in the road, some of us get those a little bit earlier in their lives, and some of us get them a little bit later, or, we, or whenever, we don't know quite when they're coming, um, and you've got to deal with them, um, and to deal with them collectively and to acknowledge that, I think is, is, is a lot easier, really. So, would you say the big up on that, if you're just a were still around, do you think you'd have had the career that you had? I mean, it's impossible and it's a difficult one. I often reflect myself where I've been. I mean, as my sister said, you know, don't worry, mum, he'll come good in the end. So <laughs> I don't know, I think she was right. I, didn't, I don't know whether her passing needed to be the catalyst for that to happen. Uh, I, mean, I mean, boys tend to be slightly late developers anyway, don't they? Um, so my sister just happened to develop very early, very, you know, uh, incredibly well. It took me a while to work, my, work out what my purpose was really. Um, and undoubtedly, I can't answer that question because I didn't find that purpose until she passed. So, you know, it was, um, would I have found it? I think I'd have ended up doing something. I might, I might have been able to read and write a bit better than I can now. So that might have been a bit, a bit more helpful. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the, the other thing is that there was a bit of a, the game wasn't a professional game of rugby in those days. You know, we were, we were playing, I started in 1990. It was Tuesday and Thursday and that's, the other interesting thing because it was a real melting pot of different people you know I walked into the Wasp club for the first time it had two pitches one was hardly fit for purpose it, it felt like a working man's club you know it was a real throwback um, and it was a real melting pot of, of people you had bankers brokers builders jewelers posh public people schoolboys, all sorts of different people um, and then they all came together so but what you had was was a real rich tapestry of of uh, of life, you know, and it was fascinating to, to sort of be part of that. And then suddenly the game goes professional 
And a lot of my mates said, no, that's not for me. I'm going to carry on being an architect or a plumber or whatever they were doing. And, and I was, you know, I'd already started a career in property and I thought, well, I don't know, I'll give it a go. Professional rugby, I'm not quite sure. And when I look back now, I mean, Christ, the mistakes everyone made. I mean, no one had a clue what they were doing, really. Um, I remember Nigel Melvin, my coach, saying to me at the age of 20, he said, uh, well, now we're, all, now we're all doing this as a job. How many, how many days a week do you think we should train? I went, well, I don't know. He said, well, how many hours do you reckon I should get everyone in each day? I went, well, I think Saturday's pretty important. Let's get everyone in on Saturday. <laughs> and then let's work backwards from there, you know what I mean? And some clubs just got it horrendously wrong. You know, they were training all day, every day, you know. And actually, we won the first professional title in 1996. And, but even now, I just look back and, and the, you look at the players now. We didn't know about mental health. In the, you know, mental health wasn't a... Mental health was two words, mental and health. And they didn't really come together. Um, and, you know, if you had issues around, um, I don't know, what was going on up here, which invariably you're going to because sport is brutal. You know, you are assessed every single week and if, and if you don't quite make the grade, you don't make the team, do you? And then if you do make the team, you've either got to win or lose, so you've got two emotions, there's only agony or ecstasy, and, and then you've got to do it all over again. And then you have these things like life issues that have to be coped with at the same time, and then you've got a family that if you're, tend to be in that environment. And ultimately, it's quite a selfish career because it's all about you and it's all about, you know, winning. Well, so that's the way I, I perceived it. So the, the collateral damage that comes out of your own career, it's not until you finish it that you actually reflect and go, God, that was tough wasn't it? For, for everyone around me because everyone has to sacrifice everything to allow you to be the person that you are. Um, and that, so for me, the, the, the only thing that really came out of my career <laughs> other than all the trophies and the, the highs and the, you know, the occasional lows, which were incredible, by the way, was the sense of guilt, really, at you know, having such a selfish career, because you know, it's just everything revolves around you. You know, you, you, if you're injured, you know, everyone's miserable. If you're, if you're happy, you know, everyone's got to be happy. You know? it's, um, it's, and that, I think, is life is, is, not, is not designed to be so, um, so high and low, so, so erratic, you know, you've got that. And that's probably why you can only do it for a short period of time. Mm. I wanted to just mention about your mum and dad's influence mm. um, and when following the loss of your sister, when that, because yeah. obviously yeah. trauma for them as well, when that really came, not only knew your mum as the most wonderful, passionate, mm. driven mm. woman I've ever met. Mm. and to the point where sometimes I got a bollocking after the game because I've not played well enough yeah. for Ali. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, when you run a sweet shop, you know about rugby, don't you? <laughs> but, um, well, she was right a lot yeah. of the time. Yeah. Um, but um, I'm really interested to know how much throughout some of the difficult times that you've experienced, um, when she then, like, I see her as someone then stepped in and went, oh, this is going to be all right. Yeah, no, she was very, yeah, you're right, actually. And listen, hopefully everyone's parents are, are a real, you know, positive influence because we all need role models in our lives. And, and you know, and, and hopefully the best role models in your life are your parents. But, um, you know, my mum was, a, you know, like a lot of parents who grew up in the war was, you know, obviously a force of nature and just incredibly um, fun and resilient, but also incredibly resilient. And I think, you know, the most important thing I touched on before was that unconditional love, that's the first thing that she gave me. 
Um, and, you know, when I say unconditional, I mean, when the police used to knock on the door, she'd be saying, mm, don't think you've got the wrong house, not my Lawrence, couldn't possibly be my, I mean, that's what you call unconditional love. And then, a, and then a real belief system that you can, that anything and everything is possible. And therefore, you know, she opened as many doors as she could by sacrificing often her, her own um, enjoyment and, and her own sort of material benefit to, to, to make things much better for, for myself and for my sister. So, <coughs> and she was infectious. The, the, the best way I can describe it is she's, I mean, there's a number of things that stick with me. <laughs> uh, she used to say to me, Lawrence, we arrive in this world with nothing, right? And we leave with nothing. You can guarantee that. Um, and what happens in between is that everyone chases health, wealth and happiness, which is, um, you know, some people do. She said, but the most important thing is that you give. And <coughs> it's, she said to me, try and make every interaction you have with people a, a positive interaction. Try and leave people in a, in a better place than when you arrive. And that's certainly what she did. You know, she left people and they go, my word, what, you know, and, and they felt energized. She'd spoken for about two hours about the Marchioness to them, but, um, and losing a, a, a sister, but you know, it's 51 people lost their lives out of 100, over 100 on that night. And um, there was no public inquiry. There was no, uh, there was no justice. So this is what she did. The, the, boat, the bow bell, the boat was, was owned by Ready Mix Concrete. The transport minister at the time under Margaret Thatcher's government was Cecil Parkinson. So. He was on the board of Ready-Mix Concrete, so there was no public inquiry. Um, she bought shares in Ready-Mix Concrete. She went to their AGM, I think not immediately, about two years after the accident itself. And you know they were talking about pre-tax profits of 65 million or whatever it was, and it, they didn't even pay for the headstones of the, of the bereaved. Um, so when it came to AOB, she stood up and she said, yeah, I've got any other business. My name's Eileen Delalio. You murdered my daughter and 51 other people. And she spoke for about two hours. By this stage, she was already well versed in, in uh, maritime law uh, and various other things. And, you know, it's just quite inspiring. And, and for me, the biggest legacy of that whole incident was that there are now three RNL lifeboat stations on the River Thames. They're called out over 90 times a year. Um, they're the busiest RNL lifeboat stations in the country. And hopefully, people like her won't have to wake up to the news that, that she did on, you know, one, one morning in August. So, very inspirational, very uh, determined, but she would have done that anyway. She was, um, yeah. But more importantly, leave people in a better place than when you arrive. And, um, you know, it's a hard thing to say, uh, a hard thing to do as a, as a, you know, as a person, really. Especially back then, because things were just harder, yeah. to, to, as you say, with the government involvement. And I think a yeah. lot of people won't be aware of the Marchioness. No, well, I mean, there was a public inquiry six years later. Um, but she was one of the, not only, but she was one of the key drivers because grief has got, you know, gets people in different ways. You know, you, there's, you know, there, there's probably familiar patterns to certain traumas, but the reality is I was 16, you know, I didn't even, you know, I was going through all sorts of issues that 16 year olds go through anyway. Add that, you know, bombshell into your life, then, then, it, then it sort of blows your world apart. You know, men might be grieving in a, in, a, in a different way. You know, women, you know, who've given birth to a child, they, they might grieve in a different way. So, so you know, how it, how it gets hold of people and how it manifests itself is, is, is different for everyone. Um, and all you can do is, is try and, you know, somehow bring, bring everyone back together. But she was a very, very infectious woman and had a lot of fun as well. And I think that the biggest thing that I, you know, she used to say to me, another thing she used to say, you can always catch up on a good night's sleep, but never a good night out. Now that is a uh, that is one to keep because 
Yeah, I think I did actually, yeah, to be honest with you. Like most people in the East End, you know, she used to watch East Enders and go, get that crap off the telly. She said, the East End's nothing like that. She said, no, that, the East End is nothing like that. She said, the East End is about, you know, everyone has a little, you know, low in their life, but they, you know, they come out with, you know, smelling the roses. So uh, it was, um, yeah. So she was a huge influence on your life. Yeah, and and you know, parenting now is 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 different. You know, um, I'm not quite sure what fathers are expected to be these days. Um, I was just talking to my wife about this uh, last week, and saying, you know, we were talking about our own upbringing, and we, you know, we had very much fathers who went out and worked for a living, and you hardly ever saw them, um, except when there was a bill to pay or something or, or something to do. You know, and. You know, the, the things have just changed enormously now. And I'm just saying, well, what is the... I mean, what do you want from a father? You tend to want what you don't have, really. <laughs> you know? it's, it's everyone wants what they, what they haven't got. And I don't think there is a perfect way of doing it. And there's certainly no perfect way of learning. We, we inherit a set of values and principles, hopefully, from our parents. We promise ourselves that we won't um, repeat their mistakes. Uh, and that we'll try and be better than they were. Uh, in certain areas, and, and maybe not have the weakness, you know, the, um, and maybe not have the weaknesses, but it's um, it's fascinating, really. You said that being an elite sportsman is a selfish lifestyle. Mm. Bring your own children. And when you reflect back, how do you do? You think you did a, a good job? Do you, as good a job as you? Well, I think I can only. I, can, I mean, as I said, to looking after myself. I mean, I had my first daughter. We had our first daughter at 24. So I mean, I, I was barely able to look after myself, let alone anyone else. So. Um, I, I mean, I think that my wife has to be taken enormous credit for, because she put her whole career and her whole life on hold to basically be a mother, um, which allowed you know, me to focus on, on being a rugby player uh, and having the career that I had. And um, what happens at home tends to, tends to take out into the rugby field, you know, and, vi and vice versa, you know. You, you can't always take your disappointment, and, you know. I mean, I used to knock on the door after a game and uh, my wife would say, yeah, how'd it go today? Because she generally didn't. Care really to be honest with you, just apart from how it affected the family life. I said, Yeah, we won. She goes, Oh, you don't look like you won. Someone nose would be across my face and stitches or something. She said, Did you score? I said, Darling, you know, it's not my job to score, but once every four games, maybe. <laughs> so she's that, that'd be it. And then she's giving me, you know, my daughter back, and that'd be it. So I think, um, yeah, parenting is, is uh, parenting at that age is, is, is interesting, but. Um, we just tried to come to the, we just tried to create an environment where your children feel happy and safe and um, just a set of boundaries. You, you know, kids growing up now need boundaries. You know, it's not, it's not all right to have a mobile phone until you're a certain age. It's not all right to have a laptop or to play stupid video games at a certain age. You know, it's not all right to drink Coca-Cola at six in the morning, you know. So they need boundaries a little bit. And if you create certain boundaries, then I think you get certain behaviors and, and um, yeah, but it, I'm not suggesting that ours were right, but, um, you know, and, and some of the chat, I think it's really hard being a young person now. I, I would, you know, because the most important thing about being young is just to have fun and just enjoy yourself. But now the expectations on, on young kids is like, there's, there's sats and exams every single term. It's like, wow, what happened to just going out and having fun? Um, and I think with technology, with mobile phones, you know, you just, you know, there's, there's obviously all sorts of cyber bullying. There's, I mean, it, I just think it's hard. And, and so therefore, I think our job as parents is to make it easier and lift that pressure and not, bur not burden them, not be over-parenting, not try and live your life vicariously through them. 
you know, we've all made mistakes, right, in our lives. And I think you just try and point out how not to make those same mistakes and, and, and let them have fun because it's all right to be a late developer and it's all right for them to, I mean, my son turned around to me and said, Dad, not interested in, I love rugby and I'm going to play it, but I don't want to be a professional. He said, look at you, look at the state of you. I said, yeah, good point. Uh, you know, my daughter said to me, Dad, mm. Uh, they played rugby and they were pretty tidy until the age of about 13. And they said, um, would it be okay if we didn't play anymore? I said, 100%. I mean, you know, I said, would it be okay if you didn't hang out with rugby players? That'd be even better. And they said, oh, no, no, Dad, that's, a, that's not quite what we said. Um, yeah. <laughs> I said, all right, fair enough, we'll do that. But, you know, you can, you, you, you can do everything for your kids, but you, you can't, you've got to let them, you know, breathe, etc. So, you know, and... and the, and getting to open up and communicate, that's the key, isn't it? And, it? and this is what we're talking about here, you know, around mental health and strong man and your charity is getting people to talk about their problems um, and share their issues if they've got them. Kids are no different. Kids have all sorts of things going on in their brains, some of which they, they will tell you and some of which they won't. But you're not a mind reader, you know, you've, but, but you have got to be a mind reader with your kids because you've got to be able to spot these issues and problems. But I think growing up, I, I mean, that, there's no way I'd have brought a lot of the stuff I had back into our house because it just, you know, it's just a different environment. But now, I think you can encourage your children to come back to an environment where they're able to open up, they're able to feel confident enough to, you know, I mean, obviously, if it's, you know, when your daughter's not going to go straight to the dad and go, you know, I've got some, you know, I've got some issues, it might be, you know, it might be different. But I think that communication is the key because if you spot those issues early on, then you're able to do something about them. I think that's just a bit that, you know, back in the day, we used to go, go and look for something. Yeah. For you, it was rugby. For me, it was rugby. Um, rugby is just a platform in order to be able to express yourself uh, yeah. through, and, and rid of some of that emotion. Uh, or not rid of it, but certainly um, use it. To your yeah, but you're not quite sure. So, you know, we're all good at something. Some of us are lucky enough to find out what it is. And, and I, I don't know, there's a lot of pressure on, on young kids to be this, be that. Just let them be, you know what I mean? Let them find their way. And, um, you know, I guess you try and open as many doors as possible, give them as many experiences. If they're anything like I was or you were, they, you shut a load of them in, your, in their face and go, well, that cost me a lot of money and was a waste of time. But eventually you, f you land somewhere that you feel very confident in. And I don't know, I just think it's okay. I mean, some people know right from an early age they want to be a doctor or something. I mean, I didn't. Uh, and, you know, so it's okay not to know, what, you know, and it's okay to explore. And you've got to encourage young kids to... To, to use their curiosity and use their imagination and, and yeah and, and explore and have fun um, and and you know look after each other. I had James my son when I was 18, my daughter when I was 20. I don't think you know if you've done a good job until they become adults. That's when you know for me if you've done a good job. So when I reflect, when I look at my children as young adults, mm. I don't know how we got to where we were and there was bumps along the way and there was different paths. Yeah. But I look at them as adults and I realise that I've done. What we did, my wife and I did. Yeah, I think you're right. And I don't think they really appreciate, and this is probably a bit, ins I don't mean this insensitively, they don't really appreciate what you really are like as parents until, until you're gone. You know what I mean? To, to a degree. I mean, I miss my mother. Like, I really wouldn't believe she died in 2008. Far too young. And, yeah, I mean, I just, when I reflect back, um, and my father's 88 now, and he's, you know, not that many more years left for this life, you sort of think to yourself, what they what they've done for you to allow you to be to have you know to, to get to flourish is incredible really they may not have been able to sh shower you in gifts you know or anything like that but 
they, you know, they give you the last tenner in their pocket, really. So, um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. But you know, when you, you know if you've done a good job when your kids still want to hang out with you when, you, when they get a bit older. <laughs> and it's not just to pay the bill. <laughs> I mean, that's generally, I mean, they, they obviously want you to pay the bill if they are hanging out with you. But um, that's, that's, yeah, that tends to be the way. And, if, and if, if you build an environment where they keep, where they keep coming back, you know, that's, that's a good sign because, you know, we are very similar to the, you know, animal kingdom as well. You know, if you've got to, if you keep coming back to the nest, right? you keep coming back home, you know, and, and you keep wanting to do those things at home then. And I think that's what I would encourage anyway, to, to create that family environment where, you know, you can just always, whatever happens, you know, however bad it is, you can always just come back through this door and, and everything will be okay. Yeah, like a safe sanction. We had we, after downside, we move home. Most of us change careers, but we have a safe environment with the three of us now, which yeah. I imagine it's probably. Similar. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I, I left home at sixteen when that happened. I couldn't, you know, and I couldn't deal with being around my parents and, and, and etc. But um, that wasn't forever. I came back two or three or four times. You know, normally with a car full of washing and uh, you know lots of other things really. But and I think you know, our kids have now left home, but. They're, they're back again, you know what I mean? Or, or one of them's, you know, there's always little things that happen in life and, and uh, it's a revolving door. And I think it gets, you know, the age gets higher and higher now because it's, it's, it's harder and harder. Do you feel you looked after yourself? Do you feel like everything kind of just, because I know from our, we had a, when James died, we had an inquest that you do with a military mm. death at the time. And it's proof that it takes it out of you. Yeah. I had cancer a few years after James died. I know your father had a heart attack yeah. a few years after your sister died. Yeah. This is one of these things that I think more is, generally speaking, men and women, everybody's in a better place because there's a better understanding of the emotional side of it. Stress and everything based around trauma, people are aware sometimes of the emotional side of things. But there's a huge physical side of it as well in terms of how people eat, their sleep patterns. I mean, as I say, I, the cancer and belief is a stress-related thing. Yeah. I mean, you have to look after yourself yeah, you and as a group, don't you? Do you think with what you had going on in your professional life with that sort of do you feel that you looked after yourself as well as you could have done yeah i think you do have to i mean you know as you say there's there's emotional grief there's mental grief there's physical grief and uh, um you know ultimately if you're emotionally and mentally unstable after a serious bereavement it's going to affect you physically anyway my father's heart attack was undoubtedly not stress well it was stress related but it was stress related to the grief um because he was very healthy before that and he's been very healthy since then. So thankfully it didn't cost him his life as well. Um, I honestly believe that my mother died of cancer, but I can tell you now that I think that cancer came, came on very young for her. Um, and it was, very, it was a very kind of quirky coincidence that she died just after I retired from rugby. So she had cancer for about three years. She managed to hold on all the way through until literally I, I retired in, in May of 2008 and she passed in December of 2008. And, you know, look, when there's, when one side of your paternal relationship has been, when it's quite one-sided emotionally, I mean, she, you know, I spent all my time with my mum. That's not to say I didn't learn from my father as well. I think when she left, I had, a, there was a big void that, you know, I had to, I had to almost get to know my dad really, um, which was a bit weird. Um, uh, but that's okay. Uh, it's you know it's just how it is really. Um, and actually, you know, he as I said, he's 88. Uh, he's he's not in perfect health at the moment. He's got he's struggling with dementia, which again is another thing that is a completely different set of circumstances, and you've got to cope with that. Um, but you know, 
that's okay because I, I sort of look at the trauma of losing my sister very young. That I couldn't deal with. Parents, that there, there is a sort of passing of the baton, isn't there? Really, <laughs> I mean, it happens. You know, we, as my mum said, we're all in a box at, at some point. You know, I think I could have done more at the time to have dealt with my own kind of adolescent grief, if you know what I mean. Personally, Personally yeah. I mean, I got a bit of counselling. Uh, I'm not sure it really addressed any of the issues that were going on, and I think those issues are probably were probably there throughout my whole life since. Um, but then again, I don't know, when, and, and, and it's not too late, by the way. I mean, I, you know, I can still, I can still do that. Um, and yeah, it's just, just opening up is a, is a very, I've, I'm not gonna say that I'm very good at it. I was very good at it when it, when it went in the changing room, uh, but I'm not very good at it outside the changing room, um, even though everyone can see your flaws quite evidently. And then on top of all that, you have the situation where you know, someone's going out of their way to try and trip you up, news of the world. Yeah, I don't worry about those things really, because I think when you've had a trauma like I had with the loss of my sister, nothing in life that comes after that is ever gonna come close to the pain and suffering that you've seen and experienced. So, I mean, the first thing you do whenever anything goes wrong is you analyze yourself and you go, you know. And when I look at all the, whenever there's been a bit of a set, setback or a hiccup in my, in my career, you know, be it a media story or anything else, more often you look in the mirror and actually the first person you blame is yourself. Because, you know, was I responsible? Could I have behaved a bit better in this whole situation? The answer is yes. And I think that goes back to the honest conversations you have. Um, but I can't honestly, it's not an issue for me, really. Um, I mean, I'm still here and the news of the world are no longer here. So I think that tells you everything you need to know about, about them as an organisation. And actually, a lot of people would have immediately said, I'm never speaking to the media ever again. But obviously I knew that, that was, that's not the media. They, I mean, they, they're called the media, but then, you know, the way that they were operating. And I, I, I was very close to the rugby media. It's ultimately what helps drive your career. So uh, I think the most important thing, maybe through my loss, is not to harbour anger and not to have this kind of, you've got to let it go. You know, you've got to let these things go. Ultimately, if you accept responsibility for your own actions, you know, not trying to portion blame and be the victim all the time. You know, that's the best way to be. And um, holding on to anger towards people or actions is, is just not the way forward. You've just got to, you've got to resolve and move on. And, uh, and in many ways, that's a good thing because sport teaches you to, you know, to, you win, you lose, you learn the lessons and you move on. And you win again. And you, you know what I mean? And that's, and that's kind of... So we're not people that look back generally in life. Uh, that doesn't mean we should be running at 100 miles an hour, which is what I spent the last 30 years doing. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't hold any ill will towards that. I think you've just got to be responsible for your own actions, accept blame. Um, and then, you know, listen, life has a funny way of sorting itself out. And you now, obviously you're retired. Yeah. What? fills that gap. Yeah, I mean, no, well, no, well, well, nothing fills that gap, does it, really? So therefore, don't try, and, don't try and find something to fill the gap because, you know, rugby and, and sport at that level, at least, I mean, it's just a great journey, really. Um, but one journey comes to an end. And, you know, and you, you, know, you like reading a great book, isn't it? You know, but you just put that book down and you find another one. And I was always, I, I, was, I wasn't that afraid of retiring. Um, I was actually really excited about it. Because I go back to the, I'd, I'd kind of done the journey with, with my sister. I'd, I'd been there 20 years and 
Playing that sport at the highest level, believe you me, takes its toll on you physically. I was, I was just mentally, you know, physical. I was just about hobbled off this pitch on 55 minutes in 2008. So I was ready, I was ready to move on. Um, and I think that's not to say that it's still not a challenge now, um, because when you finish your career at 35, you know, you've, you, you just simple things like organising your life to take a bit of time. So, um, but rather than going, what can't I do? What am I going to do now? It's, I, I sort of, you know, the usual Eileen Delalio sort of spirit embracing it. Well, what can't I do now? I can do everything, really. So um, rugby got in the way of me actually living, living a life that you, that what I'd say is a normal life. <laughs> um, now, I'm not suggesting I'm, I've ever lived a normal life, but it's just, you've got to be so focused on what you do that there is, there is very little time for anything. And it's, it's not until you retire from sport or rugby that you actually start to reflect and go, well, who am I? Because I'm not that psychopath who takes the field every week, you know, really, am I? And that's, you know, that sport at the highest level is a bit like that. You know, it's, there are people who unfortunately kill people without having any idea why they kill people. There are those who are paid to kill people, um, you know, in the forces. And then there are those who, who play sport at the highest level who they don't physically kill people, but that's their mentality. So there is this kind of slightly psychopathic nature of playing elite sport at the highest level where the, where the brain is wired in a certain way. And what you have to do when you retire is not try and kill everyone. <laughs> not try and kill everyone, let alone, let, alone at the, let alone at the bar. I mean, you know, it's okay, man, life is not competition anymore. You're not trying to kill everyone. You're not trying to win everything. And, and well, certainly decompressing is not easy. But equally, you don't want to go back to being, a, you know, like a lounge lizard either, you know what I mean? So, so I think the, and you have to really spend a bit of time on yourself and that's, uh, and, that, and that's a journey of discovery, isn't it? You know, to work yourself out and go, well, who am I? Because I'm not sure, I'm not sure who I am at the moment because I've just been this kind of guy that's just been going, whoa, 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 like this, up, down, up, down. You know, relentlessly, every, you know, like nine months a year. Oh, you've got two weeks off and then you get back into it again and again and again. You know, I've had 15 operations over my course of my rugby career. I mean, and that's probably, I'll probably have another 15 before I pass away. Um, and so therefore, it, takes its toll on you. So um, I think bringing up the kids in, in, the right, in the right way has been important. Um, I'm never going to replace the highs that we, we've had. Um, I don't think in, in certainly in, in, in that way, but that's okay. I mean, when you get to a certain age, you, you, you appreciate things slightly differently. And, you know, your success is, is measured not by trophies anymore. Um, thank God. Um, and, you know, it's measured in different ways. Rugby sounds like it was a lot of fun when you got into it. Now it's a, it's a beast now. It's like a brand thing and everything comes into it. Do you think you were in the, the best sort of era for it or would you? So I think I felt honoured um, and privileged that we... I went professional as one of the first professional rugby players along with a whole generation of people. I felt sorry for the guys that didn't have that opportunity before because they, you know, they behaved in a certain way. But I felt privileged and, and I thought, this is amazing. You know, we're playing rugby now uh, and we're... We, got to, we get to shape the game. We get to decide what happens, you know what I mean? I think now the, the, the knowledge that they've got now on, 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 on everything is, uh, is a lot more, you know. I mean, Clive gave everyone a laptop. He said the team with the best IT wins, the, wins, wins, wins games. And everyone was like laughing at him. And now you turn the telly on and you've got there's a suite of laptops up there with all the coaches. So he went, well, maybe he had a point. Um, I think we, so yeah, we, we invariably had a great time because... We're in the results business, right? 
I mean, I don't, people, you sit down with people and, and it's as black and white as that. We are, at Elite Sport, we are in the results business. So it's about winning. Now, you can't win every game um, because celebrating every week would be tough, really, to be honest with you. you you've, got to lose, you've got to lose the odd game. Um, and actually, you learn a lot from, from, you know, from just having your wings clipped a little bit. Um, but you've just got to win the right games, the ones that matter. And, you know, it's a very simple team talk. We can you know, break it down to a head and heart, emotion and all that sort of stuff and talk about, you know, being, you know, getting people in the right headspace. But if we win, you know, our careers are going to move forward and we're going to go and have a good time. If we lose, we ain't going out. <laughs> we're going to discuss why we lost and we're going to work out how to win again. Um, because if you are, if you're playing rugby, you need to be winning because I couldn't think of anything worse than losing. I mean, because you've given, you've thrown everything into that, that whole week of your work, of your life has gone into that and then you lose and you go, well, what's that all about? And if you're doing that on a regular basis, mate, you're clearly not very good at this sport. You need to go and find something you're good at because it ain't rugby. I mean, I, I don't know, guys just turn up now and I, I feel for the players because, you know, I'm not worried about the fact they earn money or more money. That's, that's, it was never about money for me. Money wasn't my, my goal. My, mine was about the, you know, the, the, the why was, was, was a much more emotional and spiritual. Um, and that's not to say that everyone has their why. Uh, maybe it is about money. But if it is about money, then, then play a bit better, mate, because uh, you know, I'm on a bit more and, I, and you're not playing very well. Um, I don't know. It's, it, it, so I, I do feel for the players. You look, it's a very different game. I just wish they'd, that ultimately, you're the people out there in the, in the arena that get your face smashed in every week, right? And that is what it is. It's, you know, you're going to war. It's a proper battle playing rugby. Uh, it looks very glamorous when you see people pick up trophies and whatever, but it's not glamorous at all. There are huge sacrifices made and therefore, um, you know, you've got, to, you've, got, you've, got to, you've got to do it, you've got to do it properly. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, I think we had a great time. I just feel that if you, got something to say you've got to say it to the coach or the player or the you know the best teams in the world are coach-led but they're player driven and leading people is about persuading them that your ideas are their ideas and then they disseminate that throughout the team don't they really and and you've got to challenge you've got to have that healthy tension between challenging each other and i just look at players now and i just wonder whether they challenge enough the world's changed yeah you know you could challenge young players in a much different way when i you know, now as young it was to to what you... the world's more sanitised, isn't it? And, and yeah, I'm not sure sanity is the <laughs> yeah. But it, we were saying the other day the character seems to have gone out of a lot of sport, not just rugby, but out of a lot of sport. And I guess that's that fear of saying stuff and getting in trouble, maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Everything's very visual now. Everything's filmed, yeah. isn't it? If you guys were all filmed when you're on the night, it would have been a different Everything's experience. Documented. I don't think they know how powerful they can be. You know, they can, they can be the pioneers to influence the game. Don't just do as you're told and follow what everyone else says because you, you believe it's the right way to be. You know, be the, be the person that drives the sport forward and takes it in a direction. And the, now, there are those players that exist, but they're, they're fewer and further between than they, than they used to be. Don't just take as what you've been told to do is right. Um, That'll be the sign of the modern day, a very good coach that's ahead of the game that would leave his door open for young players to be able to come and well, I just think empowerment, empowering people is really important. You know, give them, give them the responsibility. I mean, you do that with your kids, don't you, really, to a certain degree. And, um, you know, and I think playing is the same. Um, it's, 
you know, and you look at the values of the sport um, that, that certainly that drove me to play the game as well. Um, in my, my own personal sport, I'm very disappointed at the moment. I think there's a lot of self-interest um, and not a lot of leading. Um, and therefore, we've got, some, you know, we've got some real issues in our sport. Um, and we're you know, overanalyzing it, making it way too complicated. But also, we have to appreciate that the generation that are going to watch this sport and take it forward are digesting information in very, very different ways. You know? Getting people to sit down and watch linear television in the same room is quite difficult these days. Um, yeah. you know, the way that you're scrambling and fighting for people's attention in every single space. So, therefore, um, we've got to be, we've got to think much more smarter about how we communicate um, with, with the next generation, you know, um, if we want it to move forward. So, yeah, listen, I, I, I broadcast on the game and there are games that I just, oh, I leave the stadium thinking, wow, that was terrible. I mean, literally, I had to apologise to the viewers about 58 times. You know, don't adjust your TV set, the game really is this bad. Um, and then there are games that just lift you like, to a different level and, and just inspire you. And, and you can look at that and you think, yeah, that's why I, I fell in love with the sport. Because what these players can do now is amazing, some of them. Um, we, we, we didn't know anything about recovery. You know? <laughs> well, I mean, getting smashed to pieces and then getting into a bath with 15 other blokes that looked like a sewage and then running upstairs and drinking 20 pints in the, in as, as quickly as you could. And you went, mm, I know that's not good for me, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And as the game went professional, then you had to learn how to, um, I mean, you've only got to be the best. And when, I, when we suddenly woke up and thought, right, we want to be the best team in the world, we thought, well, mm, well, it's not in France and it's not in Ireland and it's not in Scotland and Wales, it's in New Zealand and South Africa. So we need to start waking up every morning and measuring ourselves against them. And until we're better than them, then we haven't got to you know, where we want to get to. But all I can say is that the greatest thing about rugby is when you get to the top, and I will say this to people, when we won the World Cup, imagine climbing Everest, right? Imagine doing it on your own. That would be an amazing achievement. And you get to the top and you look out and it would just be the best view you've ever had and it's just the best feeling you've ever had. Imagine doing it with other people and getting to the top together and, and literally you, along the way you're going to fall down, pick yourself up and you do it together and you get to the top and you hold hands together and you look out. That's a far better feeling because life is about sharing and it's about, that's the, the way I see it. You're not on this planet on your own. It's about being together. And when you achieve things together, the feeling is immense. Um, and it's, uh, it beats a bit doing it on your own, that's for sure. I suppose watch as a spectator when you watch the national team play in whatever sport it is, a lot of that feels like it's gone a little bit. That, I'm, I'm sure it's a huge Yeah, maybe just an emotional connection, really. I mean, just, I mean, when you win, there's a reason why you won. You played well, so, you know, just accept the credit and, and pass it on to other people. And, and get, when, you, when you lose, just be honest. Yeah, we lost. Sorry, nation, that was bad really bad, um, we'll put it right. Um, it's unacceptable because I think if you take ownership of something, um, then it, it notifies everyone that, you know, that you're, you're, you've accepted responsibility for what's happened and that you're going to put it right. And, um, and then it puts a bit of pressure on everyone in the, in the group to put it right. It? Instead of all this, oh yeah, we've analysed behind closed doors. And we say, well, it's all behind closed doors. I mean, you don't have to bear your soul to the public, but certainly, you know, I'll be shouting at the TV, and then, you, and then you hear the captain say, "Yeah, I'm sorry, that was really unacceptable, and you know we know that, and we'll put it right." You go, "Okay, fine." 
I mean, is it acceptable to lose to Scotland four times in the last five years? No. No. Not at home. No, not anywhere, really, but definitely not at home. So, yeah, I mean, I'm... Life's about legacy, isn't it? It's about passing, some, passing on to the, to the next generation. And my rugby career was, was glorious in terms of what I was able to share with people. And, you know, we had such a great time together. I can't, I can't say that. But you pass that on to the next generation and hopefully they make it better. And, uh, yeah, the, the, one of my biggest disappointments being back in the England dressing room is that, you know, that... The, I'm not quite sure that's happened, really. I, I don't, I'm not one of these guys that sits there and won the World Cup and thinks I really want England to lose every game because, you know, it, it might remove me from the after-dinner circuit or this, that and the other. I've got absolutely, completely opposite. You know, I want people to be successful. I want players that play after me to share the, the feelings and the experiences that I had because I felt very blessed to have had them. Um, so, yeah. And everything that we created really should have been built on, um, not not torn down with not invented here syndrome. Um, so yeah, we used to have a dagger in the corner of that room that was given to us by the SPS. Um, and it was awarded to the player of the match in the England dressing room. Now, it was quite hard to get one because, you know, Johnny Wilkinson and Jason Robinson, we used to win it nearly every week. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know why that's not there. You know, that was, a, that was a legacy that was really special and meant something to the group. And then all these names that were on there, like there's names here, on the changing room. But I, I do feel certain teams, great teams, build on, build on success. And, and, and your mindset is, um, I just want to make it better. I, I inherit what I've got. It's a, you know, it's, you don't, there's no God-given right to play rugby or for your country ever. But if you get that privilege, you, you take it on board and then you, you leave it in a better place than when you arrive. And that's what any top-class operating team does. I've said this to people, you know, when you get picked for your country, you know, you represent the hopes, dreams and aspirations of millions of people. You know, that is an awesome responsibility. And you've got to accept that responsibility and understand that it, it has consequences. And I'd like to be here. Yeah. I'm a talent. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, and, and, but it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to lose occasionally. Um, it's got to be improved. Yeah, it's, it happens, you know, but you've got to, you've got to, you've got to just, just learn and be honest with people about, about what's going on. So, yeah, it's... Uh... Thank you, Lawrence. Uh, Cheers, Lawrence.